1915, the Harrison Narcotic Act cracked down on the distribution of coca and opium-based drugs in response to a surge in addiction dating back to the 1870s. But by that time, physicians who recognized the harms of opiates had already helped turn the tide. I'm Stephen Morrissey, managing editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with David Courtright, a professor of history at the University of North Florida. Professor Courtright has written a perspective article about a previous opiate crisis in the United States and the lessons it offers for addressing the current epidemic of opioid abuse. Professor Courtright, how does the recent increase in opioid abuse parallel the rise in addictions you describe in the 1870s and 1880s, and how's it different? Well, it parallels the current rise in many ways. Both had technological drivers. In the 19th century, the introduction of hypodermic medication, specifically morphine injections, was the primary cause of the epidemic. And then in the late 20th and the early 21st centuries, you had the advent and the heavy marketing of prescription opioids, which was the primary driver of the big increase in the early 21st century. They do differ in terms of prevalence. I think probably the maximum number of people addicted in the late 19th century, specifically in the 1890s, was about 4.6 per thousand. We may now be at four times that rate. In the 19th century, physicians had few effective alternatives to those morphine injections that you mentioned for treating conditions of pain. How much has changed in terms of options for pain relief? Oh, there are far more options today, which is one of the disconcerting things about the current epidemic. Is it really necessary? And to what extent is it a function of heavy marketing of drugs like OxyContin? These are some of the questions that critics have asked of the current situation. However, you're right. In the 19th century, it was very different. People did not have the kinds of alternatives that we have today for the symptomatic treatment of pain. And the tide turned really in the last decade or so of the 19th century Aspirin, for example, became commercially available in 1899. It was possible after 1899 for doctors to prescribe aspirin for everyday aches and pains as opposed to opiates. That made a big difference. As you write in your article, before the Harrison Narcotic Act was passed, physicians and pharmacists were lobbying for local and state laws to control the sale of narcotics. How much today do local and state laws affect opioid sales and prescriptions? Do you think there's an effective role for them? Yes. Of course, it varies from state to state, and one of the things we know is that when some states started cracking down on the so-called pill mills, as in Florida's legislation of 2010, which took effect in 2011, it did apparently produce some significant results. So then as now, you have regulation on both the state and the federal level. Progressive physicians and pharmacists definitely did favor increased regulation in the form of, for example, prescription laws that required everyone to purchase an opiate to have a prescription written by a licensed physician. And in addition to that, there was considerable, I'll call it peer pressure, maybe even shunning would be a better word, within these professions. There was a frank criticism of physicians and pharmacists who acted in a mercenary fashion. And I think that also helped to discourage excessive prescribing in the late 19th century. You write in your article that 19th century physicians also succeeded in reducing the epidemic through primary prevention. What does primary prevention of opioid abuse look like today? Primary prevention today means creating fewer new addicts through more cautious prescribing practices. Essentially, the number of addicts and the number of overdose deaths is a function of the number of sales of prescription opioids. 
And if we can get those down, we can reduce the problem. Also, if we can get the dosage down for current pain patients, we can lower the risk of overdose. And also, if we can provide more and better treatment for addicts, including medically-assisted recovery, that would help as well. You say in your article that abstinence-only treatment doesn't work very well because recent abstinence is, in fact, a major risk factor for fatal overdose. Why is that, and does that apply to other kinds of substance abuse? No, it doesn't apply across the board. First, abstinence-oriented treatment does work for some people. Unfortunately, it doesn't work for everyone, and opioid addicts are at especially high risk of overdose if the treatment fails. So one thing we know, both nationally and internationally, is that a very common scenario for fatal overdose is that someone will enter a treatment program, either voluntarily or under legal pressure, or they'll be sent to prison, and they'll come out, and they'll start using again. And when they start using again, if they're addicted to opioids, they will have lost their tolerance, and they'll be overly confident about the amount that they can take, and they'll drop dead of an overdose. Someone who is treated for, say, heavy cannabis use might relapse after treatment, but they're not going to suffer the same consequences as someone who's addicted to opioids. Opioids are different in that respect. Abstinence-only treatment is nonetheless mandated in many places. Do you expect those strict policies are going to disappear, or will they remain in place? That's a hard question to answer because the policies are not necessarily based on evidence or reason. There's still an overlay of culture war politics. And there's also a long tradition, which goes back to the Harrison Act, actually, of denying maintenance to addicts. Those are hard prejudices to overcome. But my hope is that the weight of the evidence and the magnitude of the current overdose crisis will force a rethinking of those policies and that we can move toward more medically-assisted treatment. So finally, what strategies will ultimately end the current opioid crisis? Will there be a movement among physicians and local policymakers the way there was in the 19th century, or is it going to require action on a broader level? Well, I think that there is movement among physicians. There is growing concern over this issue, both among physicians and among politicians. In fact, the Wall Street Journal recently ran an article about how drug deaths are becoming an issue in the 2016 campaign. I think the real key is primary prevention. I think what happened in the late 19th century is that primary prevention succeeded. Doctors became more conservative. The existing addicts left the scene, as it were, fairly quickly because many of them were older and quite ill, and some of them, of course, died of overdoses as well as other diseases. And if you follow that logic, something like that might again happen in the early 21st century if we can manage to create fewer new addicts. Eventually, the existing addicts will either quit or otherwise leave the scene, and that will lower prevalence. Thank you, Professor Courtright.